Walk your talk. KGNU talk. Call in. Call in and talk. Call in and connect. Connections. Friday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU. Connections. I am your host, Rosanna Longobetter, and you are listening to KGNU listener-supported community radio. And today, we will be talking about access to water for the most vulnerable in our communities in the state of Colorado. And in studios this morning, we have local social justice environmentalist Michelle Gabrielov Parish. Welcome to the studios, Michelle. I'm so happy to have you. Buenos dias. Thank you for having us. Oh, boy. Buenos dias. We also have Mark Magaña, director of Green Latinos. Welcome. Buenos dias. Great to see you. Buenos dias. And we have Victor Galvan with Conservation Colorado and Protegete. That's right. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a powerhouse this morning. I'm so happy to have you all. And here in Connections, a show, a call-in show. So I'm just going to let people know right away that they can call this morning to 303-442-4242. You're going to have an amazing experience this morning of learning from this powerful environmentalist. I did it. About the need of being at the table when we make decisions about water. As you know, I have been working on a story about the Colorado River, and it is complex. I have been reading so much about it and doing so much research and reading up and down the Colorado plan and the Colorado water plan. And there are words that are easy to understand and things, but it's very technical too. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to interview you, Michelle, right away, and you got me connected with the Institute of Asequias, the Asequias Institute. And I was able to talk to Dr. Devon. Devon Peña. Devon Peña. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, it was an eye-opener for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have this morning a little part of him speaking, and I think that it is super important for us to listen to him. And then we'll go into this deep conversation about water rights and what water really symbolizes to all of us. I just want to make sure that I let the listeners know also that it's right now 837 and that they can call here. But before, I would like if you can please introduce yourselves and give us a sense of how you and your organizations have been involved in defending and defending this, this water, you know, access to water for the most vulnerable. And I'm going to start with you, Michelle. Okay, thank you. I'm so glad you interviewed Devon Pena. He's been a, a mentor of mine, and he was my first professor in college, and we got into really good trouble together. And he helped me get onto this path. Um, so I'm a founder of Once and Future Green, and I'm a consultant through there and work on environmental justice and ensure that institutions and organizations and governments um, know how to relinquish control and give it to the communities that are impacted by whatever issues they're working on. And also work with frontline communities to say we have more capacity than we think we do. We have legacies of leadership and especially in sustainability. This is ours. This, If you want to know how to live sustainably on earth, you look to um, communities of color from around the world. So trying to step back into that leadership role. Um, I also was a founder of FLOWS, uh, which is an environmental justice organization in Boulder, and we partner students with um, uh, frontline community members to do sustainability work together in the community, um, and that is housed out of the University of Colorado Boulder, and that's still going strong. It was founded, I think, 2016, and then... Um, I was also recently on the Colorado Water Equity Board, and so we're trying to help influence that Colorado Water Plan to say, um, 
we need to have community voices in there. And so often on Colorado River issues, it's like only lawyers in the room. And even the lawyers are confused. And so how do we start opening it up so that the community can get involved, which actually might be a major part of the solution, right? Like the lawyers are confused. So let's get back to basics and make this logical, sensible, equitable. Um, so that's some of, the, some of the work that I'm involved in right now. Michelle, I remember before, years before, when you had the Flows series here and you ended up having wrap-up at the Dairy Center. It was a packed house and it was incredible. And mm -hmm. you're reminding me of that, that is the knowledge that we have as Latinos, as, as Indigenous people, of how to take care of our Mother Earth, La Madre Tierra. Mm -hmm. And Victor Galvan, you were just talking about that outside before coming into the studios, that technical words is what confuses people. If you can please introduce yourself, tell us about you and what you have been doing. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Victor Galvan. I am the Strategic Partnerships Manager at Protegete with Conservation Colorado. We're the largest environmental um, advocacy group in the state of Colorado. And um, Protegete is a program that... Um, um, focuses on bringing Latino leadership to the table. Um, my job is really to audit some of those coalition spaces, make sure that, that we are um, working in a space that is is um, is um, changing gears in terms of how hostile some of those spaces are. Um, um, like it was said, um, a lot of those spaces are full of lawyers, um, technical and policy terms, and frankly, it, it intimidates a lot of our leadership. And um, so... One, my job is to make sure that folks understand that we need to we need to speak in layman's terms in terms that that um, our community can relate with, and two, also bringing up the leadership that can can meet and match um, the 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 tables where they're at. Um, so we're doing um, both at the same time. Victor, thank you so much for that. I had the opportunity to interview Beatriz Soto, and she talked about this plan that you put out, it, this was December 15 or November 15 of 2022, about how is it that we're going to address the problems for Latinos in the environment. And it's kind of unique. Why? Because you cannot put Latinos in one box only. They are in, living in different places. Um, you know, they are working in the land, but they are also working in the cities. And they are particularly affected by climate change. So that was, wow, I had the opportunity to interview her in Pasa La Voz in our show in Spanish. But before we go now, thank you. Before we go now to uh, this short piece that I have from Dr. Peña, and it's in Spanish, I'm letting everybody know that we're going to have then a little bit of um, translation here with Michelle about what he's saying. But before, I want to go to Mark Magaña with Green Latinos. Please tell us about you and your organization and what you have been doing. Well, I love your reference to Devin Peña, Dr. Peña, and Beatriz Soto and other heroes of this movement. So that's that's great that you're bringing them into this conversation as well as this uh, elite panel here. Um, my name is Mark Magaña. I'm the founding president and CEO of Green Latinos. We are a nationwide comunidad of Latino, Latina, Latine, environmental and conservation advocates. We come together across different sectors of the environmental movement to build relationships with each other. We convene um, together to be able to build trust, to be able to break down historical barriers that exist between different sectors of the movement, to build partnerships so that we can share the unique resources, access, power, privilege, information that each of the sectors of the environmental movement have, whether it's uh, Latinos in the uh, Big Green Legacy Groups or Frontline EJ or Academia, Foundation, Renewable Energy, um, Government Sector. We each hold different privileges and powers that we need to share with each other in order to help each other with the work that we do, but more importantly to help our communities achieve their environmental liberation together. And so that, the work that we do uh, with water expands from how we bring more, elevate and bring more resources to organizations that are on the ground that are already doing the work in their communities that are completely under-resourced, that are completely not um, being paid attention to significantly enough or haven't the community hasn't surrounded them with enough power to be able to get the work done and have the voices of the front lines be front and center. And so our ability to 
be the intermediary resource uh, link to resources and elevate and bring more seats to the table so that when we these uh, issues are debated in the halls of power, whether it's city or county or state or even federal, that we are represented and that our voices are heard. Mark Magana, I have known you for a long time. I remember when you used to come from Washington, D.C. for the Latino Eco Festival, and now you go to Washington, D.C. to lobby or work really hard for environmental issues. So you know the powerhouses. Um, you know how it works. <laughs> so I think, yes, like I'm telling you, this is a, an amazing group of people this morning. Listeners, please call us to 303-442-4242. You can ask questions here to really get, you know, these these answers that we are looking for, especially when we talk about water access Right now, as you know, we are still waiting to what's going to happen with the Colorado River allocations. And that, well, is another story. And uh, I want to bring right now Davon Pena short. It's a minute and 15 um, seconds. It's going to be in Spanish. And we're going to listen to him. And he's going to be talking about how is it that he sees that Asequias this time in the Colorado plant was not, were not there and why he thinks that. Entonces, sí, claro, se olvidó de las acequias, se olvidó de los tribus, se olvidó de la agricultura uh, urbana. Entonces, estamos tratando de atacar ese plan porque nosotros somos un ejemplo, las acequias, los tribus y los movimientos de agricultura urbana. Somos ejemplos de movimientos sociales que pueden responder, uh, no sé cómo traducirlo a español, an arid, sensible way of life. Estamos acostumbrados a vivir con sequía, con las incertidumbres de, de clima. Estamos uh, nosotros como acequias impactados, afectados en gran mayor por los hechos de la historia ambiental del capitalismo y del colonialismo. Nos ha afectado mucho. Entonces nosotros como acequias podemos enseñarle al estado de Colorado y quizás al resto del mundo cómo vivir una, un, una vida cómo establecer y, y sostener una vida uh, que tiene se ha adaptado a, a, a las condiciones de, de una zona árida. Y es lo que tenemos ya pues miles de años demostrando la sostenibilidad de las acequias. So that was Dr. Peña with Instituto de Acequias, Acequias Institute, talking to us about, you know, the deep knowledge of acequias and how he sees that the reason why acequias is not in the Colorado plan is because it's, like he says, it's because it's racism and mm -hmm. colonialism. Mm -hmm. So if you can explain that to us, Michelle, because I know that you speak about this a lot in conferences, mm -hmm. if you can clarify that for our listeners. Yeah, well, I love what he's saying that, you know, we forgot the sequias, the tribes, urban agriculture and movements of sustainability um, as these plans were being developed. And so for me, I go back to the Colorado River Compact that was signed in 1922. So we just had the 100 year anniversary of that in November. And um, I like to show pictures of the guys who signed that compact. Um, And there's a couple of reasons. One, it's definitely all older white men who made that compact. Um, it was in 1922. Native Americans weren't even considered citizens until like 1924. Um, and Mexico was not considered whatsoever. In fact, the maps that they used to drop the compact had a line at the border where all information just dropped off. The river didn't even flow to its delta, which is in Mexico, on the maps that they were using. That's how much they didn't consider whatever was going on south of the border. So you can bet that their um, negotiations didn't think of the entire flow of the river. And so really, I like to say a lot of the problems that we're having with the Colorado River and with water in the West actually comes down to racism. And if they had... Um, talked at all with native communities at that time as they were drawing up this compact they would have been very clear that they were drawing up the compact on a wet year everybody from this land knew this was a wet year 
And yet they drew up who got what amount of water based on this wet year, thinking that that was going to continue. So they started us off in a way that was going to incur debt, essentially, water debt. Mexico was not brought into any kind of negotiations until 1944. Okay. And... Um, at that time, I think Mexico got um, a third of what it was asking for. A lot of it was dependent on excess runoff. Um, so it was sort of like, we'll give you a little, but anything extra you'll also get. And, um, but it was, um, yes, yeah, so it was, I'm sorry, it was half of what Mexico had asked for, but a third more than what the U.S. had come with. So, um so, yeah, you can see in these negotiations, it was really about how do we hoard as much water um, in this part of the world. And the other weird thing is that, you know, the colonial mindset that Devon was talking about said, this is such a waste to have all this water flowing to the ocean. Right. So it's sort of like in having the river dry up, they got what they wanted. They thought it was wasteful. And now it's not just flowing to the water, to the river, to the ocean. At the same time, a lot of those same men um, did start to backtrack once they saw the development of cities in the West and said, whoa, 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 this is actually excessive and I'm not sure how we're going to sustain this. So, you know, there's been issues um, from the beginning. And I love what Devin Pena is also saying because he's reminding us that water in the West did not start in 1922. Okay, there was a sequia traditions, there were native traditions, um, there's native irrigation happening here. And so really, how do we go back to some of those things to look for leadership and say, this is what it could look like to live sustainably here? Michelle Gabrielov Parish uh, talking this morning about acequias and ancient, ancient tradition that has proven for years um, in different places that is amazing and it works really well. Mm. I see Mark Magaña eager to speak also about this issue. You met uh, Dr. Peña. Tell us tell us about it. What are your thoughts about this? Coming from uh, a DC-based federal background where I worked in Congress and at the White House, you did not hear about indigenous solutions. Mm it was not presented in the witnesses in Congress or the specialists that were presented at Department of Interior or at the White House. And so hearing from people who were able to teach you and enlighten you about systems that existed well before what we thought were the modern miracles of agriculture and um, you know, uh, reservoirs, and how they had solutions that were sustainable, that were based on natural laws, based on gravity, based on water's natural movement, and using, working with nature instead of cementing up nature um, was eye-opening for me. It was, it was astonishing that is, this had been ignored by policymakers for so long and continues to be. I'm, I'm not, this is not in the past. Um, but that he, Devin and others' leadership in bringing this to people's attention at a high level from PhDs and professors to be able to speak this language but also speak the language of policy and also speak the language of legislation to be able to say we have solutions and indigenous leadership, indigenous creations need to be paid attention to. And you see that now under this new Department of Interior, under new language that you see in legislation, that it, that they claim, that they present that this should be centered, um, that indigenous stewardship ideas should be centered now, and that's new. It's new, and in the Colorado plan, if you look at it, it's translated into Spanish now. But, and there's also an equity, you know, component. But I looked and looked, and I could not found the word acequia. So I obsess a little bit about this, and that's how I'm centering my story around the Colorado River. Um, Victor Galvan, is there something else that you would like to add because of the knowledge of our people that speaks to you right now? Absolutely. Um, I just got done um, listening to the audio recording of, um, of Braiding Sweetgrass. And one of the first statements that's made in that book that just captivated me and made so much sense, it just spoke to my heart, 
was how capitalism in this country has worked so hard to get rid of commonwealth and that the commonwealth is of the people and makes and creates resources for all of us. Whereas capitalism is about taking and exploiting a resource for one's own personal gain. It's been working against us since the beginning of colonialism here in, in the Americas. And it continues to be the enemy of the, of, of the people. Um, even the way that water is treated here in Colorado, it's so complicated because the way that it's owned is from this perspective that if I was here first and I took, I took from the Commonwealth before any other, that it belongs to me first and no one else. And it incentivizes people who own that water to use it all, every single drop that they have access to before it can run down river because that's profits running out, out of their pockets. But in reality, they're hurting all of us, including themselves. And that, that book just spoke so clearly about being in communion with nature and that that commonwealth being so important about how we as people, people of this land, have worked for millennia to maintain and to help nature and the, the, the rivers that flow down into Mexico uh, that are now dry. Um, you know, um, I've been learning so much with one of my compañeros, Josh, who talks about, you know, the importance of like native vegetation, native um, animals who, who have been eradicated for the for capitalism. Right. Beavers that are no longer existent in Colorado that help protect and retain water in our forests and now are dry. And we're seeing droughts and fires that have ravaged Colorado. Victor Galvan. Yes, you're right. That's the reality. I also had the opportunity to interview Andrea Yolotea. We're going to listen from from her to uh, her thoughts about it. But I really want to point out something super important what you have said. The Commonwealth, and I'm going to put myself in the story too. I come from Ecuador, and in our country, nobody owns the water. It, you know, really, the acequias and the, the water belongs to everybody. It's not a commodity. For me, it's really incredible to think that if you own a piece of land, you also own that water that should, you know, go through, and that. It's, it's really crazy. And I also have to say that in my country, it's sad because it's also happening that with the mining coming, corporations are taking that away from the indigenous people. And I don't know if you listened this morning to what's happening to the Yanomamo during Democracy Now! We heard about the difficulties that the people there in Brazil have been experiencing. This is a global a global problem. I just want to point out, and uh, let me tell you, time runs really fast here. It's 8.57 this morning. Outside is snowing, um, snowy, sunny, it's beautiful, and we're waiting for your calls this morning to go deep into this conversation about water access, water rights. It's deep. I want to make sure that I give the phone number again, 303-442-4242, and we're going to listen part of the interview I was able to get with Andrea Yolotea. Uh, my name is Andrea Yolotea Chartiwi. I'm the executive director and founder of Harvestable First Nation. And my relationship with the fight for water goes back all the way on 2003 when the Hopi Nations actually started a race, um, uh, you know, a sacred run from Hopi land all the way down to Mexico City, and they ran on protest for a protest to stop the water privatization, which it has been an issue since not only now, but almost 20, you know, basically 20 years ago. And um, we had a huge ceremony that took place, and they asked for women particularly to to carry water in ceremony and in prayer to pass this message along, you know, of the importance of water and life and how it's connected. And that the time that we start privatizing the water and the time that we start uh, depriving other living beings, not only humans, but the plants and the animals and everything else that is sustained, you know, by water, you know, then we will have like a huge climate crisis. Um, 
it's well known that because of the arrangements that the water courses have taken by corporations and things like that, the climate has changed dramatically, you know, drastically. And this is why they keep saying that if we don't do something within the next period of now eight years, I will say, that the climate will change so drastically that Colorado um, areas will become almost like the desert of New Mexico and Arizona and everything else. And the climate that are above us, right, all the way in Montana and uh, closer to the the border of Canada will become like Colorado weather because of the drought that is existing and is forcing, uh, it's being forced by corporations more than anything and the benefit of the consumerism privatization of the water. As we are seeing right now, the situation with the Colorado River, we have six states that in a way found a compromise, but then there's Mm -hmm. one that said, no, I'm going to do what I want, and it happens to be California, and is the one that first come, first serve, gets the most water and all that. What happens with mm-hmm. the Native Americans that are around the river that have not been able to really take advantage of the, of the waters? There are nations that don't even have the tubes to get water in their houses. How can this mm-hmm. happen? Nowadays, and this is not in the media. People are talking about, oh, corporations are coming to buy land in in Colorado because of the precious water. That is on the media. If you can speak about those people at the riverside that have been, in other words, expropriated of the water, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the water source. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Um, It's well known that, um, right, like corporations in the system has always target, especially, you know, Native Americans and, um, you know, indigenous communities from here to perpetuate slow violence and perpetuate, you know, the extinction of our people. And that is privatizing the water sources. And not only that, but polluting the water sources that we have available for us. Like, that's why Standing Rock, right, was so important because of the pipelines in uh, that were taking place and they were polluting and have been polluting the water sources that are fresh for the reservation of the Standing Rock communities and affecting directly the communities that don't have access. Fracking even over there at the Shoshone Reservation, right, where there is a lot of fracking and it's targeted to be always on the communities where Native Americans and you know, marginalized communities exist. And that's like the tactic of the system to keep things privileged, right? So what is urgent for people to know? We need to know our rights. We need to get educated and we need to fight and stand up and say, you know, we are here and we need to have access to water as everybody else. And we need to be able to lobby. We need to be able to create policies where we are included and demand our rights like that. So we need to go to this councils and and, and fights and, and make presence there so we, we can be heard and we can make the change because the government's supposed to be serving the people and as we know that's not the best role of it. We as people are supposed to be creating those policies that protect us. And so by us knowing our rights and how to change that, it will empower us and give us a lot of power back and we need to start knowing how to grow back our food we need to know how to create water so we can make the aquifers be flourishing again also offer some prayers to the water so the water can come back again prayers to the water Mm. andrea yolotea with you talking about the water source you are listening to kgnu 88.5 fm 1390 Denver, and we are here in our Connections show, calling show, and I am already seeing some calls coming, and I'm excited. I also want to let people know that people can send an email to dj at kgnu.org if they want to ask questions this morning, and I am here with three powerhouse environmentalists. 
Michelle Gabriel of Parish, Mark Magaña, and Victor Galvan. And we are talking about access to water, especially for those communities that are the most vulnerable in the state of Colorado. And we are having this conversation today, and I want to just make sure that I ask you, what are your thoughts about the sacred waters? Why is it important for us to, you know, really acknowledge that they are alive, like what Andrea just said to us? Because it's, it's sad. I don't know what, what else to, to do. And I'm pretty sure that the listeners are thinking, but there's a lot of people already in charge. Why is it that the things are not being taken care of as they should? I mean, a lot of the people in charge are the same people in charge that created this problem. Um, and who were so far from water is life. Water is life. And um, like Victor was starting to say, you know, that's not how these policies were made. It's not about water is life. They were about water is economy. Water is growth. Water is development. Water is agriculture in places where it doesn't belong, cities where they don't belong. Andrea was also talking about the impacts on Native communities and how, you know, it's pretty wild that even in headwater states of the Colorado, Native people don't have as much access to that water. Um, so there's huge impact there. And I also want to bring in, especially since you brought in a panel of Latinos, that Latinos are disproportionately impacted by the Colorado River. You know, there's about 40 million people dependent on the Colorado River um, from here to California. And... Um, so much of that is about agriculture, and Latinos do the agriculture in the United States. Um, up to 75% of agricultural workers are foreign-born, most of those being in Mexico. Um, so there's all of these inequalities happening. And then I also want to speak to some of the disproportionate impacts. I like that Andrea also brought in. It's not just about water quantity, which seems to be the only part of the conversation that the lawyers are having around the Colorado River. It's about quality. It's about um, the extraction that's happening for oil and all of the that waste going into the to the rivers. It's about the pharmaceuticals going into the rivers. So, um, you know, the Salton Sea, as it has dried up in California, is in a, in a Latino community. And you know that ring that you see when water has dried up um, with minerals and whatnot, all of that is being more and more exposed there and is being lifted up by winds and the community is suffering from asthma and respiratory conditions. So, you know, for us, it's like such a clear example of water is life. We're not just talking about water for drinking or water for agriculture. We're talking about ecosystems that impact our lungs and impact the foods that we eat. So it's because everything is connected. It is everything all connected, is connected and especially through water. Um, and I want to say I think it's especially important for people in Colorado to be involved because here so much of the conversation is about the majesty of the Colorado River and, um, you know, recreation of the Colorado River. And, and there's a lot of funds going there. And, yeah. Yes. Michelle, and, Michelle, you're completely right. There's a yeah. lot of funds going over there. And we are getting a call finally. I'm going to put it in. Okay. Um, Jim is calling us. Jim, do you hear us? You are you're on air. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, more of a comment and uh, appreciating the conversation. So in the in the Western U.S., water is is really the rate limiting factor for life of all all species, all activities, um, and and indigenous native knowledge of that is is deep. I mean, there's places like. Walnut Canyon near Flagstaff or Mesa Verde, you know, lots of evidence of, of habitation and having to move because of drought context and so forth. And so um, I, I really applaud the conversation, but I wanted to bring in the other dimension um, of population and consumption. I mean, it, of course, I really like the comments of how do we redesign the way we work with water to really honor the refilling of aquifers and getting what we have these these torrential i mean we're getting heavier more episodic extreme events whether they be droughts or or precipitation events and when the precipitation is high we should be getting that instead of all this flooding and so forth we should be directing it to 
sell aquifers, and that there's a lot of research. We have to figure out how to do that. But, I mean, the South is mining water, and we're just this completely unsustainable growth. Everybody's trying to fight for the water and pretend like there's no limitation. And it seems like the native knowledge is there, but we really need to bring in, we've got to reduce our consumption. We've got to get back to a sustainable thing. We're on a suicide path. So I wanted to bring in the population and consumption issue, and I applaud the conversation. Thank you so much, Jim, for your call. Somebody wants to, you know, reply to Jim this morning. Thank you for that call. And what you're asking, you know, not only um, opening the door for ancient knowledge, but also reducing the use, the use that is not necessary of these sacred waters. Yeah, Jim touched on a, a lot of very important points. And I think you know, uh, personal consumption is an incredible place to start as an individual. And um, we really do need to set the, the, the stage for what and how um, industry behaves in, in our community and um, um, in our cities. If we don't set that stage and we allow for overconsumption and, and facilitation um, of goods and, and products, um, then, then we are just... Um, waving in the wind of the the whims of capitalism we we do have to have a trajectory um, um, shift and that does start at home I will also add that um, our personal consumption is nowhere near the levels that um, they are for for um, agriculture other industries that consume um, large portions of, of the Colorado River um, we can only set the stage, right, in our personal consumption. We will not make radical change to the amount of water that flows back into the River Delta. Um, you know, we're only 10% of the overall consumption, um, but we can strive to, to have the, you know, the amount of water that we use um, and waste. Um, but setting that stage will also um, allow us to say, look, we've done our part. When will you do your part? Or in fact, saying this is where you start. And it is interesting. And Victor brings up a lot of good points in that I've been told that if we eat one less day of meat, that the savings when it comes to growing things like alfalfa for feed that are very, it's very water intensive crop, that the savings annually would be the equivalent of what we need to save the Colorado River. And that's just one day of meat. And so when, and, and Victor also mentioned this, when capitalism takes the forefront and uh, hydroelectricity or big ag take the forefront, then it does change and affect uh, our priorities when it comes to human consumption and, and the politics and the money take over. It really does skew uh, the thinking. Right on. We just got a message also via email uh, here, and I just want to read it also because it goes together with what you just said, Mark Magaña, about it. This comes from Fierro Martillo, and um, it's talking about the Colorado River coverage that we're doing this morning. And he's saying it is important to participate in policy-making forums to complement that aspect of the water situation. What is happening to educate water consumers about their role? It is part of the school curriculum. How about all the waste, etc.? And then, you know, some words in Spanish, sin agua no hay vida, sin tierra no hay paz. So beautiful. Thank you for sending that email. Mm. Michelle, you want to respond to that? Yeah, uh, to both the comments, one is that there is enough. There is enough. Um, and we get caught up in these conversations um, about there not being enough water. And it's like, there's not enough for the way that we use it. It's like that saying, you know, there's enough for everybody's needs, not for everybody's greed. And, um, you know, even when you think about personal consumption, we we have inherited a very colonized way of looking at water and looking at how we use it. And so think about um, people trying to make conservation efforts almost like a, a budget and saying, OK, I'm going to spend this money very sparingly and how different money flows through a community when 
it stays in a community and you can have it exchange hands multiple times. And it's sort of like that with water. It's not just about reducing our use. It's about having it go through multiple systems uh, while it, while we have it. And so um, in permaculture, there's this idea that a desert and the definition of a desert is a place that has drought and flood, drought and flood. And so <laughs> Um, a lot of those indigenous practices, a lot of the ecological design practices help mitigate for both of those things with the same system. So, you know, you can uh, increase the water storing capacity of a yard or of a of any land by increasing organic matter, mulching, things like that, slowing down the water, spreading it, sinking it. And that's actually one of the ways that the aquifers get refilled. So even in our conservation efforts, there's a way of thinking about these things that isn't really ecologically oriented and isn't indigenous. Um, so it's not about zero escape. It's not about we need to plant rocks. Please don't plant rocks. Call us. We'll help you figure another way out. It's not just about planting cactus. It's saying, whoa, look how much water we're getting on each of our rooftops. That's enough to grow actually whatever we want without having to pump any water anywhere. You know, and I think we've just gotten so used to these systems. Like, you know, I think of myself and we are in the Colorado River watershed. But naturally speaking, we're not. We're on the other side of the continental divide. The water is being pumped over here. So in conservation, one, it's about conserving water or using it in different ways and thinking about it differently. And energy is also very connected to that. You know, it's a huge energy use to pump water over to this side of the mountains. And all along the West, there are major cities that they're top three energy uses is pumping the water. So there's all these different ways that, you know, conserving one thing conserves another, but all of it takes a different way of thinking about things. And um, getting back to, again, slowing the water, spreading it, sinking it, and in slowing it down, things like aquifers get recharged. And we start thinking about multiple systems. One of my mentors in this field, Brad Lancaster, says he's got this challenge for everybody to see how many... Um, organisms you can have your water go through before it leaves your your home essentially so it's like it goes through you it goes through you know bacteria in your yard it goes through a tree it goes through you know down to another plant and then it leaves your property whereas right now you know even when we have water falling on our rooftops we try to get it to the storm water as quickly as possible and water is just like running off so how do we change those systems and look and see like we actually have enough to do a lot with the water that we get even in a dry place like Colorado and actually doing that will also solve for a lot of the flooding issues that we had and here in 2013 we had those massive floods um, that showed us that we do need to deal with with both fire and flood drought and flood mm -hmm. Michelle Gabriel Loveparish talking about the importance of saving water, the beautiful water that gives us life. And I have Jim again calling. It seems like he has a question now. So I'm going to put him. Jim, you're on air. You have a question for our guests. Okay, this is not Jim again. This is a different Jim. It's another Jim. <laughs> Excellent. Welcome. There should be a state law in Colorado and several other surrounding states that corporations are not allowed to own water or land. And that's my comment. Thank you so much, Jim. In the acequia system, I want to say this, this comment reminds me of that because the way that our water system is set up, the largest holders have the most rights and have the most say and are the ones who have a seat at the table and are respected at the table. In the acequia systems of governance, the smallest holders have the most rights. There's everything for, you know, there's enough for everybody. And that's where I come from. I come from the acequias and the comuna. The comuna takes care every Saturday that the water runs through. We go outside, we clean the, the acequia, we, we make sure that it's going to flow and that everybody's going to get their share. You're right. So that is the reason I'm like super surprised as I am investigating these. And I had the opportunity to also to speak with um, a hydrologist that I want to bring up as we are getting more calls and getting more emails. And I will check. We're having a deep conversation. We're thinking about water and water is life. 
just like Michelle is saying, I have Victor Galvan here with me. I have Michelle Gabrielov Parish, and I have Mark Magaña. Please call us at 303-442-4242 if you have questions, if you have comments. They are welcome. My name is Gordon McCurry. I'm a professional hydrologist who's worked in the Colorado area for about 35 years. What are your concerns of uh, the Colorado River that you would like people to know? You have a deep knowledge, but for the common people to understand the situation that we are facing right now. One of the key issues, and I think one of the motivators of upcoming negotiations among the basin states, is that the water levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead are getting very low. And they're getting so low that pretty soon the water levels in those reservoirs will be below what can be used to generate hydropower. Uh, hydropower provides electricity for for millions and perhaps tens of millions of people in the basin. So that's a prime consideration and, and really should motivate the water managers in the seven basin states to take serious action. Uh, a second then is the curtailment of irrigated agriculture. The, the lower basin, particularly the area in southwestern Arizona and South California, grow the majority of the winter vegetables that we eat not only in this country but internationally, uh, particularly the winter lettuces and so forth. And so we really need to think, what are our priorities for the water? Do we want to prioritize uh, tribal water rights, growing of food and crops? Do we want to prioritize filling swimming pools in Los Angeles and San Diego? Gordon McCurry, hydrologist, uh, we are listening to him, and, you know, he has deep reflections, but we also have another call. Can you hear us? Do you have a question for our guests? You're on air. My question is about, seems like we're giving the water to the oil companies and the real estate developers. Like, that seems to be why we have dams and why we allow fracking. Fracking takes all this water and injects it underground to make cracks, and then when they have waste, they mix it with water and inject it underground. So that water, I mean, the waste pollutes the water supply, so we end up with polluting the water that we would have been able to use for drinking or gardening. There's one other idea, like John Nichols wrote The Milagro Beanfield War, and it talks about how water used to be for local people to, like, to farm, to grow, have gardens, to raise chickens, and then it's taken away by real estate developers. They use it to build luxury houses and vacation homes. And, you know, like right now, a lot of water is being used to grow alfalfa, I think, in the southwest of Colorado to send down to uh, some of the oil countries, Saudi Arabia, for horses. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Somebody wants to take it, make a comment about this, Mark? I mean, it's extremely relevant that he mentioned fracking and communities surrounding fracking and communities around surrounding other industries are often Latino and other low-income communities. And um, they have historically, uh, Latino and other low-income and communities of color, um, suffered extremely lower quality of water um, from uh, extreme high levels of nitrates surrounding industrial food complexes. Um, that really hurt uh, your ability to absorb oxygen, uh, hurts your babies, hurts pregnant mothers, hurts your ability to for your brain to get oxygen and develop properly. These are huge issues, um, issues surrounding and PFAS is something that our government really hasn't taken upon itself as the huge forever chemical issue that it is. Um, and so being able to really regulate and moderate and help our lower-income communities uh, who are constantly seeing their water be below standard levels um, to be able to address things like fracking nearby is going to be important um, for the future generations. Mark Magana, talking this morning about water access and water rights. We also have, um, I don't want to miss out, putting out this interview with Angelique Rodriguez Apache Youth that I had the opportunity to also interview uh, because I want to close it with her wisdom of the waters. 
And after we listen to her, then we're going to come back to our guests and we're going to wrap up this morning. It has been amazing. Connections for you here in KG and you. The old ways were about allowing the water to have her life and to not be wrangled in and controlled and dominated and mastered and all of those things that we think that we need to do with our relatives. And that's not the way of our future. We need to go back to these old ways where we're looking at water as the source and not a resource. That change in perspective will make all the difference where we can see the water as a living, sentient, intelligent, emotional being that she is. And, and you know, spirit put water as the conduit between us and him as our sacred mother. And so when we look at water from these types of lenses and, and the waters in our, in our that are within us, then we can see like the mismanagement and how really it's, it's like, you know, they have animal shelters and they have all these things for all the living animals to be taken care of. And people are very indignant about that, but they don't think about what we're doing to the living waters. Why do we need to pay attention to what the decision from the federal government about allocating or not allocating this amount of water. And it all comes from the Colorado River. You know, six states kind of said, okay, we're going to do this. And then there's California who's saying, no, I don't want to do it. I want to do it my way. So I did a walk for the Rio Grande this summer uh, for her personhood rights in July. For the entire month, we were walking to the headwaters in Creed from Santa Fe. We made it up to Cuesta, and then we had bus issues, and we ran out of time because we were spending time with the water and picking up trash. And it's these, what she taught me in that walk is that what we do, it really starts with us. It's understanding that the pollution and the toxins and the stagnation and the disease that lives within our waters is a reflection for the waters outside. And that this is a personal journey because this is what spirit put between us and him. And it's not until we can see the water as this living being that is us in, in our birthright, in our, the likeness of, of spirit. That is the only thing that, that's the cymatics that we live in in this three-dimensional world is the is, this, is um, every iteration of water from our newborn baby to a kitten to a tree to the sunset to the oceans it's all water to us and when we understand that that's that we are the resonators of what we see in this world then we can understand how to change it it's a contradiction almost, like, you know, owning the waters. How can we own the water? We don't. We're stewards of the water. That's the difference from colonial thinking to an indigenous thinking. We don't own anything. We're stewards of it, just like our children. We don't own our children. Latinos are not at the table. A representative of the 10 tribes last second, and then now since they were not in agreement, the decision of what we're going to do with the Colorado River waters, it's out of our hands. It's really difficult to find solution in systems that the foundations are the problem. is flawed in its perception of what the whole point is. They've lost that spiritual element, that connect, that personal connection, understanding that water is life you know you look at the 17 sdgs none of them exist without water i don't care what industry you're in you're, you're using water what's your final you know thought or blessing that you would like to give us we are in this state of colorado the headwaters i would invite everybody to really spend time with her to sit with her and to really open to the sentient, beautiful, loving, nurturing mother that she is because there's so much abundance there spiritually, mentally, 
everything. She's got everything for us. And just like any relationship, it takes time where you sit and you ask a question and you look in their eyes and you're present and you're listening. This relationship is no different. And to really go spend time with her and let her enchant you and show you and be the mirror to the beauty and the wonder and the awe that we are. This morning we have been talking about the access to water, the sacred waters, and I really want to thank all the guest speakers this morning for taking the time to come to our studios to talk about water access, water equity, water rights, especially for the most vulnerable and underrepresented in our communities. Thank you, Mark, for coming to the studios. Michelle Gabrielov and Victor Galvan, I would like if you take a time to wrap it up this morning. And I also want to thank the people that called and sent messages. Please, Michelle. I think the main message here is we need to rethink and redesign the way that we do all of it. Um, water is a great place to start because it is, we're in a crisis. This is an emergency moment. And it has been, I think, since 98 is when the river stopped flowing to Mexico. We need to rethink what it is we're growing and why, you know, even thinking about the meat that is grown here. You know, there were so many buffalo when settlers arrived here. They couldn't see the ground. They were astounded. Really, this whole place was a giant edible forest garden. And so what I would like to see is reimagine, redesign and like use use what was actually here and the imagination to make this place paradise again. It can happen. There is enough. Um, we're just going to have to do things a little bit differently, and the payoff is going to be amazing. It's more bountiful, it's more beautiful, it's more delicious. Um, we'll feel more connected, and we'll be in more right relationships. So, and in order to do it, we are going to have to organize, and you are going to have to meet with other people in your community. You know, if you want to meet with Flows, come join us, Green Latinos. You have Protegete here that is also doing the, the policy work and building the community power to not just re-envision, but to say this vision has to be put into practice and it needs to be done so now. Michel Gabriel of Parish, thank you so much. Mark Magana. Oh, I love that. Uh, we could make this place paradise again. That's so motivating. And also the other comment you made about there's enough for everyone, but not enough for everyone's greed. I think even, even in um, panels like this and hearing from some of the speakers that you had before about the indigenous wisdom, the wisdom of our elders, and being able to really appreciate that, not just in a context that we're in right now, but in the broader policy-making context. And then finally, it does, this is a, this is a moment, this is a documentary moment that we've seen other times in our history when we fight for civil rights or farm workers' rights or women's right to vote or ending slavery. Our ability to fight for our environmental liberation at this moment, for our communities, and for our existential um, ability to survive, is one at which we're the first generation to experience the effects of climate change and the last generation to be able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so we must stand up. We must uh, be brave. Uh, we must take chances, put ourselves into uncomfortable situations, put ourselves maybe at risk. But these are things that our generations before us have done every generation to make sure that the following generations can live, can live well. And we have been comfortable, and now we have to sacrifice for our future generations so that we can live in that paradise again. Mm -hmm. Mark Magaña, thank you. Victor Galvan. I really um, want to encourage folks to pick up that book, Braiding Sweetgrass, by um, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, she speaks so clearly about our stewardship of our land, water, and our ecosystems. And I feel so strongly that um, people are hungry for that kind of change in relationship with the land and the water. Um, think about your leadership, your personal leadership in this work. Um, that's the, the one thing I can offer is that you can find incredible power with your own story, with the story of your community. And when you unite those voices that are so hungry to hear the unification of their voices, powerful and incredible 
shifts in, in our, our community can happen. Thank you so much, Victor Galvan. I have been your host, Rosanna Longo-Better. We thank all the callers and we thank all the guests this morning. Thank you so much for coming into the studios again. Stay tuned for the Morning Sound Alternative coming your way this morning with Meredith Carson. Thank you. Thank you.